The first of my posts to the Facebook group about Part 3, Book 2, Chapters 10-14 through 14, was a focused summary of the chapters. Hugo has shown us in intimate, painful detail how fierce, deadly, ruthless, treacherous, merciless, and formidable the revolution has become. History was filled with a terrible shadow. Then he brings us deeper into the shadows. The Torg has been besieged. Surrounding it, 4,500 Republican soldiers. Inside it, 19 Royalist defenders. The former have ammunition and numbers. The latter have hostages. Imanus issues his monstrous ultimatum. He has locked the children in the library and run a fuse from a barrel of tar below them through the locked iron door to his hand. If they are attacked, the children will die. The children, beloved and adopted by the Red Bonnet Battalion, who, if they evaded the brutal hand of Lantanac, are among those about to attack. This ultimatum is met with two responses, different in character and reflecting the characters of the men who proclaimed them. First, we refuse. Second, we give you twenty-four hours to surrender unconditionally. Simordan, the implacable one, refuses. The arrow does not veer from its path because an innocent child comes in its way. It moves towards its goal with ruthless blindness. Gauvin, the firm but merciful one, gives them twenty-four hours. He knows that the attack must take place, but first he will do everything in his power to spare the children. Gauvin's clemency manifests both in this temporary reprieve and in his respect for the Torg. A Gauvin is attacking, and a Gauvin, Lantanac, is defending. But Lantanac spares nothing, and would have demolished it without a qualm. Gauvin, forced to attack the venerable walls that in his childhood had protected him, shows more reserve. He feels that to destroy the building would be to attack his forefathers. Simordan, who opposes indulgence toward buildings as much as indulgence toward men, nevertheless indulges Gauvin's plan to attack only the tower. The library holds the books that Simordan used when he first taught Gauvin to read. He spares them, but not without remorse. His Achilles' heel. Then the preparations take place. Gauvin sends Gaechamp to procure a ladder, hoping beyond hope that they can build or acquire one tall enough to scale the bridge and save the children. The Republicans have exploded a mine at the foot of the tower and made an opening in the wall. Around it, the besieged royalists build a rhetoric, a more terrible sort of barricade, built to allow the defenders to protect themselves and to converge their fire on the attackers who enter through the narrow breach. And Imanus begins his sinister preparations. On the top floor, he inspects the straw and hay. On the bottom floor, the barrels of tar, to which he adds fire pots and dried heather. In the middle, the library full of books, together a powder keg. And into the library he brings three cribs, holding three peacefully sleeping children. The second of my posts to the Facebook group was about my favorite lines from this chapter. 
The first of my favorites was a line I didn't even understand until, last week, I walked into the office of my dear colleague Andrew Lewis and asked him, How fortunate I am to be surrounded by such resources. I said, Andrew, do you understand this line? A severe man is unfortunate. Those who see his acts condemn him. Yet anyone who could see into his conscience might absolve him. A Lycurgus who is not explained seems to be a Tiberius. He said, Yes, I do. <laughs> Perhaps some of you do too. For those of you who don't, like I didn't, let me tell you, now that I have had the benefit of his explanation. Lycurgus is the lawgiver of Sparta credited with imposing the severe laws and establishing the rigid institutions that gave Sparta its defining identity as a highly militarized communal society. According to legend, after these laws and institutions were in place, Lycurgus traveled to the oracle at Delphi to ask the gods whether they were good. Before he left, he made his people swear an oath that they would observe his laws until he returned. Then he traveled to Delphi, received the blessing of the gods, and killed himself. Standing before Mr. Lewis in his office, chills ran down my spine when he told me this part of the story. Tiberius was a tyrant who murdered his rival to the throne, slaughtered rebels, exiled the Jews, and robbed, tortured, and killed his own subjects, including, evidence suggests, his son. A severe man of conscience, and a severe man of corruption. Hugo believed strongly that the former is Simorden. Here are a few of my other favorite lines. Quote, Pitt was a political felon. In politics there is treason, just as in the ornamental display of weapons there is a dagger." Unquote. Another still-life painting, a profound visual image of treachery. Here's another. Quote, a few fires were beginning to blaze beneath the trees of the forest and among the heather of the plateau, dotting the shadows here and there with points of light as though the earth wanted to adorn herself with stars at the same time as the sky." Unquote. A breathtaking description, and another juxtaposition of innocence and war. If you follow Read With Me on Twitter, you can see the image that I found to go along with this quote, and many others. And another, quote, I'm Gouge Le Bruant, nicknamed Brise Bleu because I've exterminated many of your men, and I'm also nicknamed Imanus because I'll kill even more than I've killed already. My finger was cut off by a saber blow against the barrel of my gun during the attack on Granville, and at Laval you guillotined my father, my mother, and my sister Jacqueline, aged eighteen. That's who I am." Unquote. That's who I am struck me powerfully. He is vengeance personified. The third of my posts to the Facebook group is one of the most important ones to me that I've made so far. I called it Suspending Philosophic Disbelief. The more philosophically inclined you are, the more strongly I want to encourage you, when you are reading a great work of literature, to temporarily suspend philosophic disbelief. Let me explain. Often, active-minded, abstract-thinking, strongly opinionated readers will continually ask themselves while they are reading, Is this true? 
Is this right? Do I agree? Though it is undeniably important to evaluate ideas and to compare them against your own, my very urgent suggestion is that when it comes to reading a classic work of literature, you withhold such analysis until after you have finished reading it. Why? Because failing to do so can, one, distract you, two, derail you, or three, deprive you. Becoming too consumed by your own evaluation of the ideas being presented, either those of the character or of the author, can, first, distract you from the plot. The first and most important thing to do when reading a great work of fiction is to simply allow yourself to be carried away by the story. The story itself is the primary value and prerequisite to all other values offered. Pausing for wholesale, grand-scale evaluation of ideas or characters is often both disruptive because you lose the flow of the story itself and premature because characters and events must be understood in the context of the whole. Second, it can derail you from the point. Often, a great novel earns the enduring reputation of great precisely because the author is capable of a vision that is, in some important way, utterly unique. That means you must give yourself over to the author for a time, working just to experience and understand and absorb his distinct perspective. If you apply your own philosophic framework to the novel from the outset, you run the risk of viewing it through a narrow lens that allows you only to fit it within your own limited purview and not to expand your vision. Third, it can deprive you of the benefit. Always wearing the cap of the philosophic detective and intellectual critic can lead you to scorn any work of literature that does not accord neatly with your own world view and can deprive you of the soul-expanding benefit of some of the greatest minds of the greatest authors who have ever lived. Those authors have something very valuable to offer a thoughtful reader, even when their ideas are wrong, corrupt even. The very scale of their thinking helps to expand yours. The acuteness of their perception helps you to sharpen your vision. However wrong certain of their fundamental ideas are, they will make countless, brilliant observations that are categorically right. This leaves many questions unanswered, the most important of which is, but what makes a work of literature great? I will have to work on a formulation of that answer, but for now, just let me say, I will not ask you to read it with me unless I believe wholeheartedly that it is.